engineers Simon Hawkes and Anthony Demanti, or Hawkes and AD to their mates, are on a journey down the river of water engineering. In this podcast series, Hawkes and AD share their inspiring conversations with a cross-section of people from the water industry and beyond. The conversations aim to motivate students and professionals alike to contribute to the growth of the engineering profession. So, without further ado, it's over to you lads. Hello listeners and welcome back again to episode number 19 of The Good Drop with Hawks and AD, a water industry flavoured podcast. My name's Simon Hawks and once again I'm joined here with my co-host Anthony Demanti or AD. AD, how are you travelling? Oh Simon, I've really been looking forward to speaking to our guest, so glad we've got him. And um, our Oswater conference down in Sydney, Oswater 23 has come and gone. Uh, did you have any key takeaways from that? Yeah, um, Oswater was great this year, I have to say, down in Sydney, um, very memorable. I had a presentation on the first day, on the Wednesday, which was talking about the parallels of wastewater treatment and winemaking, and and I have to say that went really well. What else did I take away? Obviously, I made a lot of new friends and new connections down there. I like to have a good chat, obviously heard and told some great stories. But I have to say probably one of the big highlights for me was on the awards night where the Logan Water Partnership picked up a National Innovation and Excellence Award in the metro area for the Biosolids Gasification Facility Project. And for our listeners out there, just a bit about this project, it's an Australian first. This facility transforms wastewater biosolids into a renewable energy and produces a sustainable biochar, which is a fantastic nutrient-rich product. But what else does it do? It also destroys chemicals um, such as micro and nanoplastics. And importantly, it also reduces carbon emissions by about 6,000 tonnes a year. And our guest on the show had a major part in the commissioning of the gasification facility. And we know how hard he's worked on it. So, um, yeah, it's just uh, tied in nicely to Oswater. Yeah, I think the commissioning piece is probably a central focus today. I think in the design space, that's probably the, the thing that a lot of designers have to work hard at, you know, especially when you start design initially and and um, you're probably less dialled in with everything that's required to make a piece of kit up and running. That's probably the biggest upskilling from understanding what you've taken from studies and, and can conveying it into the working environment, a critical piece really, the most critical. And, and so I guess today is probably someone that you could say a, a commissioning expert, subject matter expert. Yeah, my time and experience certainly working alongside him has been invaluable, um, learning some of those lessons along the way. Done a lot of uh, big um, commissioning pieces. So, yeah, uh, it'll be a good conversation on that point. Yeah, we've really caught a big fish today. Not a big fish exactly, but a marlin. Our guest today is Marlon Pritchard, who works for Downer Group in Brisbane. Now, Marlon is the commissioning lead on the Logan Water Partnership, and I've had the absolute pleasure of working closely with him, and you too as well, of course, for about the last 14 years. Not only do we share the same birthday, not quite the same year, but we have shared a lot of blood, sweat and tears working on some complex projects together. During this time, I personally have learned so much from Marlon. He brings so much to the table. He is literally like a Swiss pocket knife, multiple functions in one, you know, uh, design input skills, construction knowledge, and the best commissioning operator I've ever seen, and respected by all who work with him. His problem solving is outstanding, and I often say to junior engineers when describing some of Marlon's achievements, this is where the bar is set, and this is what great engineering is about. Apologies, listeners, but I think I obviously have a touch of bromance going on here. Anyway, with that, just like you, Simon, I can't wait to learn more about his amazing career. Marlon, I know you're such a busy man to get hold of. It's really appreciated to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us on the Good Drop podcast. Thank you very much. Great to be here. I'm going to start the questions off, Marlon. And like we do with all our guests, 
we always ask about your early years. So could you tell our listeners, where did you grow up and describe what you were like as a kid? Right, yeah. Okay, well, originally I'm from a country town called Hereford back in the UK and I um, I grew up on a, a dairy farm. So I was farmer's son. So as a kid exposed to all the farm environment. So my dad was very creative and always building stuff. So spent a lot of time with him building stuff and at his own workshop and whatever. So in there always creating something for the farm, whether it's stuff to go on about the tractor or or, you know, like around the farm as well. So pretty young age, I was into chopping up metalwork and welding and stuff like that, putting stuff together, usually nicking bits of his metalwork from around the place and bodging stuff together, making go-karts usually. So <laughs> much to his disgust using all his spare stuff around the farm. So that's what I sort of got into originally and uh, and that's sort of my engineering and my love of engineering sort of grew from that and then sort of moved into electrical and was doing some electrical stuff around the farm and moved into electronics and sort of, yeah, got a good sort of broad breadth of different sort of skills altogether. Yeah. Then it sort of moved into then, went, saw through school and start, yeah, went into, well, originally I wanted to go into the RAF. I looked at getting into there, sort of got through um going in as a technician for the RAF but got through all the interviews and and then they failed me on I got asthma so I then had to change stint a bit which seems to be a lot of things in my life I seem to be guided by some angel that suddenly decided to take an electrical apprenticeship in in the local town and whatever and sort of things went on from there sort of did my four-year apprenticeship electrical and then into a large nickel alloys factory which was a huge place and yeah, great place to learn and whatever, sort of learn all kinds of skills in there, electrics, electronics, did a fair bit of combustion work, working on furnaces and stuff, but also sort of diversified out into, you know, all kinds of fitting, welding, picked up a lot of different areas of skills. It was good. That's where I originally came from and now I sort of got into engineering background. So there's a couple of points there, in, in particular, a farmer's son and, and Hereford. I'm, I'm tying a few things together. So is that the Paul Hereford? Is is that the breed of cow that, that's renowned? Yeah, that's right. Hereford bull. That's Yeah, okay. There you go. I mean, <laughs> and similarly, what you talk about in terms of uh, a farmer's workshop, and this was my experience too. I grew up in a regional area, but had not so much on a farm, but had friends obviously who were sons of farmers as well and I remember just the the absolute it it was almost like you're a kid in a candy store in terms of you'd you'd walk into thing into into an old farm shed usually and a workbench and and whatever the setup might be but there would just be a wealth of old abandoned stuff that you could pull apart and you know for a kid who has a bit of nous and a bit of uh, I guess wherewithal to put something together that, that just must have been just such a, a fun time I think back on some of the the trouble that I got into um, you know doing those kind of things with with mates is that generally what your um, growing up was about yeah very much so and it probably kept me out of a lot of trouble I think <laughs> if I uh, to be truthful, I, I would say, um, and and so much so, I've sort of almost replicated that now. I start, I've just finished building a workshop at home. You know, I like to sort of relive those early years and <laughs> collecting all that sort of stuff and building stuff again. So that's exciting. I think you've had an amazingly interesting career journey, and look, there's probably a few things just to touch on briefly, but we might be able to expand on later. But you've been a DJ. You've appeared on the UK version of Robot Wars. Maybe now's the right time if you want to talk about some of those things, for example, and anything else that you've been involved in. So yeah, that's that's right. And probably engineering is pretty where most most of them led into. The DJ was a is an interesting one. So I, I a friend of mine was a good DJ. One of them was DJing, and sort of I was always interested in the lights. 
so I was always building lights for him and and stuff like that and sort of moving moving headlights which was a big thing back then and whatever and uh I remember what one night that it, it, we'd set up all these lights for him and he had some kind of drama. He had to go. He said, I'm just going to leave you. I've got, got to go. And he just abandoned me and I had to DJ this night. Like I hadn't got a clue what I was doing and stuff like that. But got such a buzz from it that I yeah, sort of fell into DJing, which went on really until I emigrated to Australia like 30 years later and sort of turned into a point where I was actually DJing in all the all the major nightclubs around by us and working five nights a week so it was almost my he was almost as much my primary employment as as uh, my electrical trade so I sort of fell into that how old were you Alan it was about 17 I think I was pretty pretty much when I started doing that and um I gave up when I moved to Australia because yeah it's it's pretty time consuming and hard work actually so uh, that was 2005 so yeah, I still got all the decks and still oh, still got yeah. all my old vinyl and whatever. Still enjoy playing around. Still do the old private parties and stuff. So, what was what was the genre for you? What were you? Were you a bit of a bit of a house man? Ah, oh, yeah, house trance dance stuff, club music. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it. some pretty large raves sometime back in the day. Through the nineties and early noughties, that's it. That yeah, was, that's great kind time. of like a yeah, that's a a milestone period for sure. Yeah, and the sort of robot wars you touched on again. You know, was, uh, watching the TV, watching these primitive robots flipping each other. I was like, nah, I've got to be able to build something that can smash that. Like, so <laughs> again, that was built back in the workshop at the farm. I was and got into that, and I think we did about four, five seasons of Robot Wars. By the- that's yeah, that that's really launched or, or taken off in terms of uh, you know a, a more worldwide and and uh, a little bit more renowned following there, there, there seems to be a, a bit of money that goes into it now so i don't think it's it quite has the the backyard element that oh, yeah. you know the like anything that starts from a starting point it's really grown into a, a professional yeah, arrangement very, very popular now in fact like i've still got the robots ready to fight we just before <laughs> covid oh i was gonna ask is, is is um we were off to go and fight in the States in BattleBots because um, we were still sort of ranked in the top 10 in the UK. And, uh, yeah, of course, COVID put a stop to that. And if I wasn't so time poor, I'd probably be over there now. But it is something I'm looking to get back into in the next couple of years to get over there and fight. Fantastic. So, who did so you make you... it with, Marlon? Who was your partner? Uh, I, I, I made the robot itself. I had a friend of mine that was in on that was uh, – who basically did all the graphics for me on it or whatever. So I had to do the hard work and make the thing and make it work and fight. And uh, he, he made it look pretty when we were fighting. <laughs> uh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. All right. So electrician by trade, how did you come to find your way into the world of, of commissioning? And, and also perhaps how you found your way to Australia? Yeah, right. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Well, yeah, so that was about... I think 1987 or something or other that was probably when my apprenticeship start and then I went through basically come out of my time as an instrument engineer and um, at the factory and and that went all the way through to 2005 pretty much where I pretty much decided that I was going to up sticks to the UK and come to Australia and um, arrived here um, thinking I was going to go into a similar sort of industry or electrical or stuff like that and uh, very quickly learned that Queensland have rules for everything which I wasn't used to back in the UK so as an electrician mm-hmm. in, in in industry there was no real ticket as such you could work without any kind of tickets and uh, so I got here and very quickly realized that I couldn't carry on doing what I was doing I had to go to TAFE and do a top-up on my uh, Queensland rules, which was 12 months. So started looking wider afield and looked at for some jobs. I moved to the Gold Coast and uh, this one come up as a commissioning engineer and for um, for Tanix at the time. And uh, as it turned out, the interview was only like three three kilometres away from the house and whatever. And I thought, oh, well, I'll give that a go. We're down there and sounded interesting what they were doing. Had nothing to do with water or wastewater, but 
it, the, the background was there. I've done a lot of commissioning of you know like large, large works where I used to work, and um, yeah, that's how I got into commissioning. And really, that's the space I've stayed in. I, I did get my electrical license in the end, which aids me greatly during commissioning. But yeah, so that's how I sort of ended up where I am. So, Marlon, tell me again why you left the United Kingdom. What was that moment? Um, yeah, a couple of things, really. The, the factory I sort of worked at, it was a huge factory, but I, I felt like I'd actually gone through the whole factory and modified every piece of machinery in there. Like, I spent a lot of time reprogramming. I did a fair bit of PLC programming and stuff like that and re engineered a lot of stuff there. And I felt like I'd done it all and I was a bit fed up with DJing all the time and... I'd been on my honeymoon with my wife. We went over to Cancun and I said, oh, man, the weather and everything like that. And they sort of all added up together. And I sat with my wife watching uh, Get Away to the Sun or something like that. And this couple from the UK had emigrated. You'd like this, aren't they? they they'd actually got moved over here and bought themselves a, a vineyard and were going <laughs> into just winemaking. I said, that's mm. it. We're doing mm. that. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I just suddenly decided, up sticks. I haven't even been to Australia and whatever. And said, thought right let's go as if it didn't work out we come back but yeah we're still here 18 yeah. years later love it here yeah yeah it's 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 a well-worn story isn't it my parents are immigrants as well and you know i think when i talked to, to my mum she complained bitterly at the start being away from family and you know familiarity but she'd never go back now not in a hundred yeah. years, she, she considers herself Aussie as much as she sounds as an Irish accent as the day she arrived. She she very much considers herself an Aussie by heart. Yeah, I think I struggle to shake my my farming e where I were over accent a bit still. There's <laughs> a bit more Aussie in there, but it's still. <laughs> you only sound different to your old old friends at home. Yeah. Okay, Marlon, look. I think I have a fair idea what you go through, but can you tell our listeners, what does your typical day look like as a commissioning engineer? And if you can tell us about how much you love what you do. Uh, so my day usually is reasonably chaotic. I see uh, my day is usually planned. I usually drive into work. I've got planned what I'm going to do or then do over the next few days, usually get my first coffee in me and then by then I've usually got three or four extra problems that seem to arrive and turn up and yeah it's a mixture of plan and firefighting all day and the day just disappears in no time at all it's yeah reasonably hectic especially the the job the gasifier job I'm on at the moment seems to be a job that keeps giving for me so yeah so it, yeah I would say I would describe it as chaotic uh, is my typical day and what do you love the most about it um i would say the challenge i, I pretty i was thinking about this and i do get bored very easy and need something to be stimulating my brain all the time I, and i think that's what happened when i left the last company is i got to the end of things to keep me ticking and, you know, like I love the challenge, trying to fix stuff, the, you know, like the stuff that makes your brain ache, like is, that's what I enjoy is the challenge of the work and the, and the different, every day I come to work and stuff's different. I couldn't be doing something that was the same every day. I'd, I'd be moving on, I think. Yeah, I get it. So I'm, you got something for Marlon? Just in terms of that breaking down that problem solving process I think that was probably where I was starting to think of I found you're good at people would say lateral thinking and and thinking a little bit outside the box for a problem you know there's that itself is a skill that not everyone is blessed with and, and I don't know if there's a way to develop it but how perhaps have you found that I don't know through it be your background or just your inner workings of who you are is is there any way to to be better at problem solving i don't know that's a tough question that is uh i i think probably i'm probably blessed by the exposure to so many different sort of trades and scenarios and stuff like that and and it does it, it 
expand your mind into perhaps thinking out of the box. Um, I think that and and just yeah, experience and just you know, just being exposed to this stuff all the time is yeah. I don't know if it's something you can learn or not. I, it's a hard one. That is. Uh, mm-hmm. Just to tack on, like, is there an example of a problem that you solve that still makes you smile and go, oh, man, I did that? Something you're really proud of? Um, There's probably a couple of jobs. The old factory I was, I was, I was thinking of, there was a large, we had a, like a, a large extrusion press for extruding billets. And we installed three new um, furnaces to it. And we got a robotic charger serving billets into these these things. And um, we had another three furnaces there that would love to be converted. And I come up with this way of inverting this robotic charger to be able to service all six, which we didn't think could be done. And so completely reprogrammed this thing and swivel it through 180, which everyone laughed at when I was coming up. But yeah, it ended up worked out well. And yeah, so that was a pretty big job, and I was pretty proud of that. The job I'm on at the moment, very proud of what's going on there, and I think by the time we get out of there, they'd be proud of that job as well. Well, I mean, I guess you can claim it as, uh, what, a Southern Hemisphere first, is it, in terms of a commissioned system yeah, for particular to, to uh, utility wastewater treatment? Yeah, I don't think there's anybody that's got one of these things going to the same sort of level as we have yet that's nowhere near as well developed and I'm not sure even in the world whether someone's got this going yet so yeah I would say yeah they'd be very proud of this one when we get out of this one yep okay Marlon uh next question probably a little in a line with uh, some of our I guess other interviews is talking to our interviewees about who's had probably the biggest impact on them in their working career. So has there been anyone that's played a strong role as a mentor in your career? Yeah, I was sort of thinking, and it took thinking about it to try and to work this out. Like I've been exposed to a lot of people while I've been in Australia that have been good mentors through there and and sort of in the award industry. But when I started thinking about that, I actually think about, and of course nobody's going to know him, a guy by the name of Dick Gladwin, who was the guy that I first sort of working for back in my apprenticeship. And he's probably very similar to where I was, where very, he was also very multi-skilled and extremely innovative. I always looked up to him with some of the stuff he would come up and you know, he always told me, taught me uh, if something was the way it was, it didn't necessarily have to be that way just because someone's put it that way is maybe not the best solution and yeah the the stuff I learned from him looking back he, he was he could have quite easily been put me the way I am like he, he with with the problem solving and stuff like that because yeah he was an awesome bloke and and probably I would say yeah he was probably my biggest mentor and sort of putting me on a on a good path to start with to challenge the status quo, don't accept that because it's the the way it's been done before, it's the way it has to be. Yeah, that's right. There was a lot of that, you know, like in, I, I know he was re-engineering a lot of stuff as well and coming up with better solutions and new innovative solutions all the time. So very possible that that's what set me the way I am is, uh, yeah, so, and, and it's funny, I've never really reflected on that until I sort of sort of see this question and yeah probably owe a lot to him yeah Mm. good that you could dig up that person's name and hopefully i don't know whether he's still alive or not but uh, maybe you should touch base with him i hear you're going overseas again on um soon but maybe you should look him up yeah it's funny you say that i'm off overseas uh, only tomorrow night and and it's exactly what i was thinking about this i was like i should look (laughs) him up and see if see if he's still bad he was yeah he was retiring quite a while ago so uh, I'm not sure, but um, yeah, look forward to hearing if you if you do manage to track him down. All right, my turn. So Marlon, look, I've I've known you for fourteen odd years, and but I'd still like to ask you this one: What motivates you in your life? What motivates me? Um, the few things I sort of think of. I am a big believer. I have to achieve something every day. I mm. I uh, I really 
and driven that every day I need to actually solve something, do something, whether that yeah. be solve a problem, do you know, like do some chore that I really don't want to have to do or something like that. It's need to try and get something done every day. And if I don't get something, I, I really feel the amount of times I say to my wife, I feel, I feel flat. I get the end of the day. If I haven't got something ticked <laughs> yeah. off, I go. Yeah, I get you. I totally get what you're saying there. What happens to you if you don't achieve that? Tell us again. You just feel flat. You feel what? Un- incomplete. Yeah, that's right. It is. It, and it, it, it <laughs> you'd laugh. It's as bad as you might even find. I quite often be in the workshop at eleven o'clock at night, guy. I need to just do do something, <laughs> and it's and you know, like it's it's crazy because. But it does. It seems to you there's something you think you've achieved something, and you, you can relax. Mm, yeah, no reward without the work, eh? Mm. Oh, well, I think one thing that motivates you is just sharing your knowledge and skills. You you know, you're always vocal in terms of imparting all your knowledge and, you know, making sure that your lessons aren't lost or your knowledge isn't lost. And I just, I suppose that's my next question is that ever since I've known you, you've always been so generous of your time to explain things, to explain what you've seen on site commissioning to people like myself and other engineers. And what drives you to do that? Is it just just part of your upbringing or is it just something that you were given as a as an apprentice? Tell me what makes you tick. Yeah, it's actually quite difficult when you think of that. I, yeah, I do, yeah, I do get a lot of satisfaction in helping others. And yeah, it gives you that good feeling in, in, in being able to impart knowledge and and stuff like that but it's when you actually think about it i was actually trying to think of why does that make me feel good and and it's hard to actually put your finger on why that does and i a few things um i thought of is is you you obviously like the feedback people are always very happy to receive help and the gratitude from you going out your way to help someone so that's obviously a great motivator. Um, I also I find it quite frustrating with people that don't go out of their way to help others. You know, like I find, mm. and and that's I, that's almost like another motivator. I, I see when people can help others and then, and they don't, and so I find that quite frustrating and don't want to be like that. Um, probably the acknowledgement that I'm good at what I do. I suppose there's feedback you know like if i'm imparting knowledge to someone it's it is like a, a confirmation that perhaps i i do know what i'm doing <laughs> yep uh, and probably the last thing i thought of is the know-it-all side of myself which if anybody knows <laughs> me knows that i'm a know-it-all um you know like it's i don't like seeing other people do things wrong or I, what i think is wrong so i'm quite happy to impart what i think on them as well <laughs> so that's why sometimes i might share what I'm thinking as well, because I think you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks for being honest about all those answers. A tricky question. Yeah, it is. It's, it's when you start thinking about it, you think you actually don't know why you actually think that way. And you, when you start thinking about it, what, why do you think that way? And it's, it's interesting. Yeah. I think we all like to be people pleasers at the heart. I think, you know, where you can do something for others before you do something for yourself. That, yeah. that that sense of altruism always, yeah, it, it gives you a good good feeling inside. You know, I think whatever it is you do, however you're helping, uh, yeah. I, think, I think we're all motivated to a large extent by that. The only downside of that, like that, that we were talking about earlier, my day of chaos, is that's usually why I'm in a day of <laughs> chaos is because... <laughs> saying yes too much. Helping something. It's, it's <laughs> funny uh, uh, thinking about it. You're like, that is only last night. I'm supposed to be packing to be flying out and I'm sat on Facebook last night and I see some woman's lost a dog up the road and she's panicking for the last day and been looking for the so I was out last night at about nine o'clock last night driving around <laughs> in my car trying to drive around the estate see if I could find a dog for her so it's just stupid stuff like that and it just ties my <laughs> time up I think it's great though when when you helping someone is is more a motivation than you helping only yourself you know mm. and 
Oh, and yeah. it's hard, like you say, when when someone is only motivated by things that only help themselves, it's just they're not a they're an icky person to be around. It's they're not a to me not a not a person I'm drawn towards. You know. Yeah, that's right. I'm exactly right. I I don't have much time for that. I'm you do come across those people are very inward self-centered and whatever and mm-hmm. you can see they're they're not in it for uh, and you come across them everywhere I... but it's bloody refreshing when you come across someone like yourself who who is willing to drive around and look for someone's dog at night <laughs> you know yeah that's unreal when i was thinking about that that's exactly right last night I thought, uh, you, you see someone who's in desperate you know i could see she's in desperate need of help and yeah, I actually bumped out into her when I was actually driving around last night because I could see her looking in there. I thought, oh, they must. I said, oh, you pulled up alongside her. You were looking. She said, yeah, 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 we're looking as well. And she said, oh, it's it's my dog. Oh, all right. She said, I've been out here since three o'clock in the morning. And she said, I was out at about oh. ten. Oh, jeez. Oh, well, actually, hmm. she got it home. Well, I don't. Yeah, you know, I haven't seen anything. So I was actually gonna. I've got my what's the name. I, I was gonna pick up today. I've got my infrared camera, so I was gonna go out and have a look because they reckon it's in this bush, and I reckon I'd worked out in this bush whereabouts it was. So I was gonna use that tonight and see if I can see it in there. <laughs> He's got some toys. Where were we up to? Oh, very good question here. Um, so someone just starting on their engineering or. Oh, any journey, problem solving journeys, what advice do you have for them in terms of how to make them a better engineer, better trades person, better anybody? Probably the one thing I could I sort of think of and being an old person, this that why I think of it is is to try and get through to people that there are people with wisdom out there that have gone through issues and scenarios that have that you may be working on yourselves and listen to some of these people who might be able to impart help for you is um i quite often find that the younger generation come out of uni think they know everything there is to know and sort of miss out on experience of what older people might be able to Mm -hmm. help with you know as and there's a lot out there and, the, you know, like there's, you know, we try and do a lot of stuff now where we feeding back lessons learned and whatever. And now you should go out of your way to try and go through those lessons learned if you're going through a job of similar description and, and look through that and don't learn the mistakes by making the mistake yourself, which we seem to still do quite regularly. We still seem to make the same old mistakes and it's a slow mm. learning process. And I think if, I think if everybody was just more open to see what others have done before them, I think um, your wisdom would come earlier. Just with this question, Marlon, Simon, I often have that same frustration with, you know, people just starting their career, engineering by the book and, you know, looking at standard details and standard guidelines and saying, oh, that's the only way it has to be because it's, it's written in a book, but, and not, thinking wide, thinking broad and taking on, you know, experience, um, people that have been around and seen how things perform over time and realise, oh, you know, that doesn't perform as well. It performs better like this and touching base or connecting with older people, I think is so important. Well, lessons learned in general, I think, is probably a struggle. They're, They're captured, but I don't often think that they're well integrated in then you come to do, redo the next job and you know like you say we we make a similar or same mistakes as mistakes that have come before so that's probably a an observation i've made over time that really being able to make those learnings and and implement them to avoid them in future it's it's a difficult thing and and i don't know that we do it very well you know and that's not just central to the in, in industry that we work in but but everywhere, you know, we'll continue to have stock market crashes. You know, it seems to be <laughs> we're really good at repeating the mistakes of the past. Mm. Mm. Oh, so much, so many things you've taught me, Marlon. I don't have enough time to list them all out here today. I'm going to change <laughs> pace a little bit now. So I know you have a love of Christmas lights and Halloween <laughs> and you, you do some amazing stuff at, at home and you've won... <laughs> Christmas-like competitions and you have 
hundreds and hundreds of people come over to see your productions at home. Can you tell our listeners on why you do this and and <laughs> and again, what's the reason that motivates you to to let people come into your home and just experience the Christmas lights and Halloween setups? Yeah. I think the motivation has changed over time. The original motivation was next door's got Christmas lights up. So I, I, I'm, I'm very uh, competitive very, now. Very competitive. Okay. And uh, there's no way, especially as I was always in lighting, that I could um, be having next door put up better lights than me. So that went on. Uh, so he had the he was up the best the first year, but that was it. That was his only year. From then on, it just snowballed and snowballed and just yeah, addictive. You just and the more it went up, the more people were coming around. The street has become well known for Christmas lights now. So basically, the street is almost shut down in the evenings, and it's turned into you know like what what we're talking about earlier, where what motivates you is. The feedback you get just from kids coming around and stuff like that, and they just they're so thankful and appreciative, you know, like it's and that it gives you such a buzz that it's now turned into that, and it's turned into something now where I can't stop. Yeah, which is the only thing that's annoying is I want to have a break and I can't yeah. stop because I'm now on the Gold Coast bus tour, so the bus always <laughs> comes up to us, so I've got Can to put something up. Can you share some stats on like how long it takes to set up, how many lights, how much, how many dollars have you invested in this? Just so our listeners can get a appreciation yeah. of what you've done. Um, if we're in the competition, we didn't enter last year because I just wanted a break from the comp. But if we're in the comp, it's got to be up and running by um, the last week in November. So usually I come straight out of Halloween. So we normally do a massive Halloween setup. And I take that down usually a couple of days after the 31st of October and then start putting Christmas lights up, bang, straight from then. So, yeah, it's it takes a while uh, to put up. Uh, Dollar-wise, I would hate to think how much dollars it costs. Uh, never added it up, but I would never let my wife know in case she's listening on here how much it comes to. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, worth hey, every minute. You've got all this up on your YouTube channel. You can give yourself a free plug. Off you go. If you search for it, probably uh, Mad Marlon's channel, I expect you'll come across it. I think on YouTube. Or, you know, YouTube if you, all the Robot Wars fights are on there as well. And oh, jeez. So if you look up for any of them or Christmas lights, Gold Coast. Do yourself yep. a favour and check out Mad Marlon's YouTube channel. <laughs> so I'm gonna, I've got another question for Marlon. So Marlon, look, if it's okay with you, and look, I'd like to touch on your involvement with you trying to get a cure for motor neurone disease. Could you tell us what you've been up to in this space and, and why it means so much to you? So my wife's got motor neurone disease and she's um, unfortunately lost all her family to motor neurone. Um, and sort of going back about seven years ago, um, when this all started to happen, I'd done a fair bit of research and actually tracked down a drug that I thought was pretty, pretty um, different in its approach and actually managed to get my wife on a trial on that. And thankfully, it's halted her, her progression. So she's still with me at the moment. Um, and so I'm sort of working at the moment, helping them try and get this drug off the ground, get financial backing to actually get it up to FDA approval and stuff like that. So doing a fair bit of work in the space of that. I'm trying to do some work on that while I travel over to the UK coming up with the Motor Neurone Association. So, um, yeah, fingers crossed. So is this in the Australian space in terms of a drug approval? Um, no, that's a, it's a worldwide. So the FDA is mainly US-based. need to get it over the line with them first. So okay. that's where we're doing work at the moment. Yeah, um, because my wife is an identical um, triplet um, because of the timelines of their time to death, which was in less than 18 months from onset. My wife is up to seven years. It's a very strong case for how well this drug works. It's excellent news. And obviously a, a journey 
very very motivated by love and passion have you had any learnings out of just that path and and your involvement in that that you've you've learned oh it's very difficult path not one i'd want to wish on anyone really yeah hard to see someone um going when their when their brain functions fully there but just basically body gives out on them it's a pretty nasty way to go so yeah it's, i wish you all the best with your uh your your challenge on this and your trip overseas and hopefully uh if anyone can beat this problem i uh i'll, I'll put some money on you to do it so i commend you for what you've done to date and look forward to hearing some more great news on it mm, hopefully yeah thanks for sharing that marlon yeah okay question 13 we're getting toward the end and it's a it's an open question but i, I do want to ask you in particular about your um, motorcycling adventures um <laughs> but how do you relax and unwind <laughs> um yeah apart from riding on motocross which um used to be very relaxing and unwinding but since i bust my back last year it's not quite so relaxing anymore because my back aches most of the time yeah probably now uh obviously i must be getting old because uh i like getting in the ca caravan and getting away so that's probably my best way of unwinding relaxing at the moment and uh yeah i think probably that's mainly because it gets me away from home when i'm at home i'm always doing something and uh away from work so yeah also love getting out on the boat something like that so yeah i usually find some if i get some time that's usually my ways of relaxing so boating as in fishing or boating as in other boating activities nah, just uh cruising around the broad water normally yeah okay yeah and so you, you you mentioned you busted your back can you tell us what happened there <laughs> yeah i got a um I like like restoring old vehicles and stuff like that. Like I'm always restoring cars and got a couple of cars in a result. But I've also got a, some motorbikes. I imported some old motorbikes. So it's an old KX500 motorbike. It's old two-stroke. Plenty bit of power in it. Um, I took it out for its first run, but I had a effectively a throttle it jam open on me as I was uh, on a on a sight lap, and basically this bike flew off a jump straight from underneath me and i landed straight smack on my coccyx which smashed about ouch six vertebrae in my back on my coccyx bone oh. yeah and ended up with plates in my back so yeah not and the most enjoyable experience oh uh, and that that was last year was it so yeah so how long a time frame were we talking for for your recovery from that uh i don't know whether you'll ever fully recover for something like that like a mm. like i'm all right now i can move around is uh and uh maybe some painkillers at the end of the day i'm hoping by about 12 months i should be back reasonably right and you'll continue on the bike uh is my wife listening to this one <laughs> <laughs> yeah the I'll official be, line I'll, is no <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'll be going back up the bike i'll just um yeah, I'll be taking things very easy. Make sure the throttles don't jam open. Yeah. Wow, okay. We've made our way through the main body of questions. Um, Anthony, have you got any any additional that you wanted to ask? No, I, um, I'm looking forward to getting stuck into the Fabulous Five, Marlon. I, um, Simon, I'm going to kick off. So, Marlon, what has been the greatest piece of advice received and who told you? So... I was thinking, trying to think of what that would have been, and I really struggled to find any big piece of advice that, that that's been life changing for me. But I, I do remember one, and this goes back to the chap I was talking about earlier, Dick Gladwin, and it's a funny story that uh, I probably should have learned to listen to his advice. So uh, I've been, um, we've been working on this large furnace. And we're having trouble with uh, the flame going out on this furnace and we couldn't work out why. And he left me to it and his, we'd got this um, 
dodgy little switch box which would avoid the flame failure control on there so that you could test the burners without having to go through all the purging and stuff like that to save time and he always told me he always said look if you've had your main gas valve on your pilot valve on for any time um and the burner doesn't light do not flick on the ignition switch or else um it, it's <laughs> going to be bad so anyway i i sort of listened to this and anyway I was trying to fix this problem and I was struggling with it. And of course, the purge timer always takes about six, 60 seconds or two minutes and couldn't be bothered to wait for this bloody time. I'd had the main gas valve on and the ignition on and no, no burner was lighting. I couldn't work out why. So I switched all the switches off. But, and I didn't wait the time on, and I flicked on the ignition. But of course, by all this time, the, the gas had been dissipating and built up to an explosive in atmosphere inside and switched the ignition switch on and blew this furnace, which is the size of a room, probably six foot up in the air and completely engulfed me in flame. I actually couldn't see anything, burnt the hair off my head and everything. So, uh, <laughs> so funny story. Yeah, that, that, that was probably a very, that was probably the greatest piece of advice I had, but I didn't take any notice of it, and uh, <laughs> as per earlier, you probably should listen to older, wiser people telling you <laughs> what you should well, be doing. So, yeah, that's probably the best I've got. So, Thankfully, you didn't have to write up that workplace incident. Yeah, I think that was before the time of swims and stuff like that. <laughs> so you've got through broken back and totally singed, so you're made of tough stuff. I t told you, I do actually believe that, uh, that there is an angel that does look after me and gets me through some bad, I know some bad things happen, but I seem to get through them. I hope you get a chance to see your friend, your... Um, yeah, I've got a feeling he's, uh, I don't think he's with, like he'd have been, he was, um, um, he, uh, he'd have been, what age would I would have been, I'd have been in my 20s and he was 60, so, nah, he can't be around now. <laughs> he, uh, making me be nearly 100 I expect I, I will find out I'll check on him but it, it's strange because I haven't even thought about him until I sort of read that question and I go I wonder who it is and then he sort of sort of you know like come to mentorship and when I actually think about it you know like he was very similar to what I am now he is mm. he was he was the go-to in the factory everybody went to and mm. sort of when he left I took his position at the factory and I was basically the go-to for the factory then, so um, mm. yeah, it was uh, interesting to go through. Okay, question two: who, who would you like to share a dinner with, and why? Yeah, it was pretty difficult. The the first one is <laughs> you laugh, and I've always thought this. I I remember sitting with the guys one night when we were up north in Queensland, and the same question. And I said, I've always fancied sitting down with the Queen. And having dinner with the Queen, and uh, I couldn't really think of why, but it, you think you, you imagine if your mates ask you what you're doing, you go, oh, "I was out for dinner with the Queen last night. I, I'd love to." Uh, obviously, she's not around. And and the other one was, and it's pretty sad. Is I'd love to have a, another dinner with my mum. I did. I <clears throat> I lost my mum last year. Didn't get a chance to see her before she went. So I would have loved to have another dinner with her. Even makes me choke up when I think of that. Yeah, oh, yeah, no yeah. That's that would have been a very tough one. Mm. Um, Anthony. All right, my turn. So, Marlon, what's your greatest non-work-related achievement? My greatest non-work, um, I think, probably meeting my wife and my two kids would probably be my greatest. But then, from an engineering point of view, probably. Um, while I was living on the farm, I actually built an aeroplane while I was on a on the farm. <laughs> I actually uh, crashed my motorbike, would you believe, another crash, and broke my crucial ligament and ended up in a cast. And I was off work for six weeks and stuck rattling around the farm. And my dad had bought a, a kit plane and uh, he got it there in the box. I basically built this plane with a leg in plaster while I was off. It's an ultralight, yeah, a RANS for sort of fixed wing yeah, wow. nylon covered. So, yeah, wow. my dad flew around in that. It didn't fall to bits. So that's probably one of my. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's that ultralight, the small, ultra small, uh, not non-commercial plane flight scares me. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm interested in dabbling with it, but yeah, there is a, I don't know. I was always nervous when I went up with my dad. I was quite happy when I was flying. It's the same as cars. I was quite happy when I was flying it, but when someone else is flying, it always made me nervous. Uh, it's like... Then you think, oh, did I put that washer, did I put that crinkle washer on that nut or not? Um, yeah. yeah. And you're looking at the, you look at the wing and there's one bolt holding the wing on. <laughs> yeah, that's the kind of nervousness I'm talking about. Yeah, definitely. Okay, question four. Favourite place to travel to and why? Um, Cancun. Love going to Cancun. It was probably from the UK, the first place I went that was, you know, like all-inclusive and whatever. Beautiful place. So I went there on my honeymoon and mm. pretty much sort of that's where the spark started that I, that I was fed up of living in England where – you know, like 300 days out of the three, 365 was rainy, miserable, or low, low-level mist, couldn't see the sun. Mm. I think I suffer from that um, syndrome where if it's dull and rainy and whatever, I get all depressed and whatever. So, yeah, <laughs> how happy that made me there. And I sort of went there a couple of times, and then probably the next time I got out of England was moving here. So, yeah, you can't beat uh, – all-inclusive swim up bar that was such a new concept for me yeah. is to be able to get in a pool and swim up to a bar so that was life-changing for me <laughs> it's definitely next level if you've got a swim up bar yeah wow okay i got the last question Marlon. it's my favorite what is your go-to drink red white or other um i would have to say other coming from hereford I don't know if anybody knows Bulmers or whatever, but Bulmers originally really? from Hereford. Yep, I love uh, that yeah. stuff. Yeah, so uh, Strongbow and Bulmers original was all local brew for me. So that's what I was brought up on. I didn't really drink anything else really until I come to Australia. I sort of broadened my horizons a little bit now. I'm a bit partial to Canadian club. I like that. When I've drunk too much cider, I need to drink something different. It's not over beer, it's over cider. And I have a Canadian club or, of course, a little bit Demantia State. Uh, I've been yes. blessed with a bit of Demantia State. Which, yes. Uh, no, you have a lifetime supply, Marlon. All the times you got me out of problems, let me know when you need more and I'll drop it round. <laughs> yeah, it's very good. Thank you very much. That's fantastic. Thank you, Marlon. Really entertaining, I think, uh, in terms of looking back over your career and, and so thank you for your time and uh, joining us here today on The Good Drop. It's been a pleasure. And just to tack on, Marlon, look, I know you're a very busy man. Thanks again for joining us. I've had a great time. Righty, yeah. no, thank you, Jens. It's been good. It's been good to go through. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening and tuning into The Good Drop. We'll talk to you next time. See you next time, everyone. Bye-bye. <laughs>